welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tassiography or palmistry. It's a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, ready to snap his tension band of goatee goodness, it's my (laughs) co-host, Frank Gaylard. I literally have no idea what you're talking about, Dixon. A band of goatee goodness. Is that like a death metal outfit? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but I like where you're going with this one. (laughs) If you had to come up with a death metal band comprising of radiologists, what would you call it? (laughs) Uh, How about necroscans? (laughs) (laughs) The necroscanners. I'd go and see them. (laughs) Just have to shout a lot. (laughs) You could probably just use sounds from the MRI scanner as your death metal beat. Have you have you got that? In our reporting oh, room, you can literally hear yeah. the gradient switching or whatever it is. Well, they've got those. Um, there was someone who did a, a Christmas carol. They, they programmed their magnets so that the yep. pulse sequence was yeah. a Christmas carol. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered if we could have some way of displaying in our reporting room what sequence they're performing in the adjacent room, Mm. I'd be able to correlate what I'm hearing with the sequence and then we could play a game, like pick the sequence Mm. and we could could really test ourselves. I reckon I could chew myself into that. Anyway, no, Goji Goodness has nothing to do with a band name. I'm referring to the tension band part of that. (laughs) The spine. The spine. Right. That makes more sense. <laughs> it's still not much sense. but <laughs> So a few months back, I covered the AO spine classification of upper cervical injuries with Imran Lasker. And this time around, we're going to cover the AO classification of the subaxial cervical spine. But you're getting an upgrade for this one, Gaylord. Oh, how's that? Because I'm not reading the article to Imran like we did last oh. time. This time... It's Imran reading our Radiopedia article to the one and only Francis Deng, so someone who actually knows what he's talking about. I'm not sure I approve, Dixon. We have to be careful here. You know, what sort of precedent are you setting? Our dear listeners may work out that it could be possible to have hosts that know what they're talking about. <laughs> You're right. Francis is overqualified for this one, so maybe we will have to <laughs> to go back to the usual afterwards. <laughs> In fact... This very week, Francis has co-authored an educational exhibit on the AO spine classification at uh, some little radiology meeting that's happening in Chicago. It's called, let me read it here, it's called RSNA 2023 or something. Heard of that one? Mm, RSNA? I don't think so. Does it stand for something? If it was an Australian meeting, you can Mm. always bet that R&S stands for Royal Society. (laughs) And the A would be Australia. So in Australia, it would be the Royal Society of numpties in Australia or something. (laughs) But here, I don't know, Royal Society of North American something or other. No, I've been a couple of times to RSNA. It's a bit overwhelming and always cold and a very, very long way away. The last time I went, I think door to door was like 42 hours between Mm. leaving the hotel and finally getting home. Yeah, that's just, it's too much. I've been to a conference in Chicago in the summertime. After I did that, I went, no, I'm not going there for (laughs) November. That's crazy. (laughs) I'll just continue to go to summertime ones. (laughs) Anyway, so speaking of initialisms, Gaylord, Mm. and what things stand for. So do you know- I'm glad you used initialism and not acronym. 
That's that's the kind of pedantry One of your that, pet goats. that I like. <laughs> <laughs> Should we explain the difference between the two? Well, an initialism is where you say the letters, like RSNA, mm-hmm. whereas yep. an acronym is where you use it as a word, which would be RSNA, which yep. doesn't really Correct. float off the tongue. So <laughs> do you know what AO stands for in AO spine? No, not at all. No idea. Well, in that case, instead of a spot the fake this episode, I've got you a quick spot the truth instead, Gaylord. So which one of these three do you think AO stands for? Okay, so option one, AO means, am I allowed to do accents? You have to. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) AO means association orthopedic. That's French. Mm-hmm. Uh, option two, AO means Arbeit Gemeinschaft für Osteosynthes Fragen. That's Swiss. And option three, AO means Antwerden Osius. That's Dutch. So, which one of those? Well, it can't be option two because Swiss isn't a language. So, you've clearly oh, made okay. that up. It would have had to be German, I guess. It sounded German. But okay. anyway, you just right. must have made that one up. I thought AO was French, so I'm going to go with Association Orthopédique. It does sound good. It does sound good. Um, well, it probably is German then because <laughs> this reading from the AO Spine website, it says, back in 1958, four visionary Swiss surgeons shared a common goal to conduct research into bone healing within a structured coordinated study group. It was effectively the birth of AO, whatever that word is, which literally translates to working group for bone fusion issues. Mm. There you go. go. And I made up the association orthopedic, although that sounds cool, doesn't it? Sounds great. You've got a Swiss passport, haven't you? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say. We're a bit like Freemasons. We're a bit of a... (laughs) We're a bit coy, but yes, yes, I've got dual Australian and Swiss citizenship. In fact, my kids also have Swiss passports mm-hmm. because if you're the uh, the children of, I think it's still men, like if your father is Swiss for some bizarre mm-hmm. reason, then you automatically get it. But my wife can't get a Swiss passport because not only do you have to be married for a decade or more, which is fine, but you have to show that you have ties to the Swiss community. Yeah. And there's not Is exactly... Toblerone enough for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not many Swiss people in Melbourne and she doesn't really like cuckoo clocks or uh, fondue. So she doesn't have one, which means, you know, it's good to have it hanging over her. She knows that I could just whisk the kids off at a moment's <laughs> notice. <laughs> And skip the queues at uh, airports as oh, well. Is that the main correct. reason to have it? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's not an EU passport. It's a Swiss passport. So neutral. But it's go into the EU queue. So it's very good. Gets you in and out of everywhere. Did you know that your children and you would not be able to be the Prime Minister of Australia or any federal politician ah. because you need to renounce any foreign citizenship? That kind of makes sense. But the thought of either of my boys being PM strikes me <laughs> with fear, particularly my youngest. He's actually right now going, um, they have junior school captain elections. And so they're all in campaign mode and now they've done the vote. And I was speaking to him. He's gone all Trump on me because <laughs> he's like, there's a conspiracy. The teachers always select a kid from the same house. It's five mm. years in a row <laughs> and it's rigged. 
And if I don't get it, then me and my friends are going to not accept the result. (laughs) (laughs) I can just picture these 11 year olds, you know, storming the principal's office. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Uh, well, we, we better get into the main segment for this one, Gaylard. So oh, actually, before we do, I just want to say that this is actually the greatest main segment of our podcast ever, um, not because of the content necessarily, but because I didn't need to do anything at all. Imran, <laughs> Imran not only arranged the recording, but he also did all the editing and the noise reduction, everything. Oh, that's amazing. So 10 points to Doc Lasker. <laughs> I think he's in Slytherin. So <laughs> let's listen in. So this is Imran Lasker and Francis Deng reading and discussing the Radiopedia article on the AO spine classification of subaxial cervical spine injuries. Uh, and after that, Francesco, the secretive Swiss radiologist, and I will be back for another chat in the outro. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Readful Radiopedia podcast. My name is Dr. Laska. I'm a consultant radiologist and with me I have... Dr. Francis Zhang. I am a attending radiologist at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland in the USA. You're a bit more than that though. You've written chapters. You, you're on a podcast yourself, aren't you? I'm one of the co-hosts of the podcast for the Radiology Journal, yep. Is that got some sort of association with the RSNA? Yeah, uh, it's yeah. one of the journals of the RSNA and uh, the podcast produced by the RSNA as well. Wow. Okay, cool. Part of the reason you're here is actually because you're doing a poster for the RSNA. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're presenting an educational exhibit about the AO spine classification and essentially trying to educate radiologists about this classification system and how they could use it to either guide their reporting or just to educate themselves about what f- imaging features are relevant for surgical decision-making when it comes to spine trauma. Yeah, and so you get a lot of trauma, I'm sure, I assume, where you're working, right? Yeah, we're a level one trauma center, so a lot of motor vehicle collisions or falls most mm-hmm. commonly come into our center. Have you noticed that kind of skews your idea of life when you start reading some of the indications? Like, sometimes it's really not that violent what happened. And they end up with these quite significant injuries. I wish some description of the mechanism were more commonplace in our indications because all we get are tier one trauma or MVC and all that. I'll I'll have to dig into the chart to get the mechanism. (laughs) We've had some proper stories come our way. Like someone, I think they had a surfboard and it was on the roof of their car and they pulled it and the bungee cord broke and then the, the surfboard went and hit their head, which basically results in a force in their neck which resulted in significant injuries and you just think wow. nah man that can't be happening from so little can it and after that when I'm trying to pull something off a shelf I move my head out the way there's real subtle changes to the way that I live my life now as a result <laughs> of my short time in a trauma center so do you tell us a little bit more about yourself what do you do in your spare time when you're not looking at scans oh I'm helping contribute to radiopedia I'm reading about radiology so you'd say that's your expertise, education, MSK, yeah. trauma, and that kind of thing. Yeah, I do neuroradiology 100%, and mm. my major interest outside of the clinical practice is doing education and trying to contribute to great resources like Radiopedia. Yeah, I've got to say, Radiopedia has been an absolute lifesaver. Sometimes I feel like I just copy-paste some of it into the report to make myself look clever, but <laughs> it's got so big now, people know where it came from, so I, <laughs> I have yeah. to refrain from doing stuff like that. So yeah, we've come together today to talk about the AO spine classification and more specifically about the AO classification of the subaxial injuries. I did the one of the earlier podcast episodes where we talked about the AO classification of the C-spine. So it turns out I'm becoming a back of all trades or of some sort. 
but we are now going to kind of read through it, talk about it, hopefully give you guys some learning points. I know it's a podcast, so if you want, you can actually open up the page yourself. It's the AO spine classification of subaxial injuries. We'll read through it and hopefully have some really great learning points and some personal experiences that come through as well. I think I said this in the last episode that I usually get Snoop Dogg to read to me because I find it quite difficult to read. My apologies in advance if I don't read particularly well. Normally I'm being read too because it's just easier for me. But I'll do my best here. The AO spine classification of subaxial injuries aims to simplify and universalize the classification of subaxial cervical spine fractures and improve inter-observer and intra-observer reliability. So I think that's the point of all of this stuff, isn't it? To try and get some sort of uniformity when you come to reporting because I'm sure you've got the same situation where you are, right? There's differences in the way they report and that can actually start to result in differences in the way that scan reports are interpreted and then acted upon, right? Absolutely. I, I feel like there is so much variability in the pros that we apply in our radiology reports and there's sometimes a disconnect between the terminology one radiologist uses versus another and also how the referring clinicians respond to those reports and interpret our words and so if we can all agree upon a terminology to describe the imaging findings i think our communication would be much enhanced yeah, exactly. And also it must depend on the the level that you're working at, right? So obviously, if I start to use something like this in my reports in a center that's not a trauma center, they may be thinking like, what's this person talking about? And so then there's the other added, not issue, but just re-educating everyone to be aware of, of the AO classification so that everyone's hopefully singing off the same uh, hymn sheet. Is that a phrase that you use, sing off the same hymn sheet? I've never heard no? that before. But you never heard that one? No. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a really British thing, is it? So singing off the same hymn sheet is you're all agreeing with one another. Okay. So usage, right? So let's read through usage. Although its existence is widely known among the relevant subspecialty groups, its day-to-day -day use varies greatly from institution to institution, and it is not safe to assume that clinicians reading a report are familiar with it. The terminology or descriptive terms used in the classification are, however, widely known. Additionally, these classification capture important high-level groupings of injuries, and it is therefore worth being familiar with them. I think we're going to have to get to the meat of this one. So classification, we're going to have to go into it. The AO, when you say the word AO, does it not remind you of that song? Uh, is it just me, just the, the way what, my mind what works? What song? What song? Naughty by Nature? Hey, oh, no? No. <laughs> Maybe not. AO spine subaxial cervical injury classification aims to categorize injuries into nine main groups. Based on the morphology of the injury, additional features such as facet joint injury, neurological status, and case-specific modifiers are also captured. So Francis, you've done the poster on this. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about sort of the types of injury that someone can get and how you're actually classifying these things and how it's appropriate to the part of the body that we're talking about? Yeah, so in both the subaxial cervical injury classification and the thoracolumbar injury classification of the AO spine group, there are three main injury types that describe the injury morphology in A, B, and C. That type A is a bone-only injury, that mm -hmm. usually a compressive type of injury involving the vertebral body, and it doesn't have any ligamentous injury. Type B is a disruption of either the anterior or posterior tension band, and that is either the, the bones and or the ligaments that kind of hold the spinal column together anteriorly and posteriorly. And so that would cause a distracting type of injury, distraction injury. And whereas type mm -hmm. C is a translation injury. So this is a fracture or a ligamentous injury that causes displacement of the two separate parts of the spine. 
So it's basically getting steadily worse as you go down from A to C, right? Yeah, I yeah. The key feature helps. of the yeah the key feature of the AO spying classifications is that it's hierarchical, and they've done mm. studies to validate that the injury types increase in severity. They ask various surgeons how mm. severe is this injury compared to this other injury, and because they've created this hierarchy, it really helps me organize my report. So I'll list the highest severity injuries first in a patient who mm. has multiple injuries. And that really helps organize my report in my mind to know like which one of these is potentially surgically actionable versus mm. which ones are minor and trivial. That's the thing with any of these sort of injuries, right? Because there's such a varied amount of force that can happen. So it's not always just going to be hyperflexion, hyperextension, rotational injury. It can be a combination of all those things. And so you end up getting a combination of injuries that then therefore have to be sort of made into a more succinct description, right? And so what you're saying is that you use this to try and actually, say if you've got a very complex fracture, this enabling you to be able to make the more complex important things come first. Yeah. And it's a description on the morphology as you see it on imaging and less mm. about inferring what the mechanism was, hyperflexion, hyperextension. One thing that mm. always confused me when it came to subaxial cervical spine injury as a trainee is how do you know what is a flexion teardrop versus a extension teardrop? We were taught mm. that one is much worse in severity, but they overlap in appearance, right? Mm. What the AO classification tries to do is just look at the morphology, describe where the fracture goes and what ligamentous mm -hmm. structures may be disrupted. But then sometimes you think like having an idea about if there was a hyperextension or hyperflexion, you think about the secondary things that you'd be looking for, that sort of soft tissue edema there. Is there like an obvious ligamentous injury? Because obviously something that's got slightly more hyper flexion injury would have a more increased impact with the ligaments in the posterior neck rather than the anterior neck. And so I think it, it's got its use there, but like you say, this classification really is basing it more on what things look like rather than the actual mechanism of injury. And I'm just going to come back to your poster. You've got some really good images. I was going through, you don't mind me talking about your poster, right? I'm hoping yeah, you not put any spoilers in. But yeah, there's some really good pictures of some quite, I'd say, I, I, I always worry, should I say interesting injuries or horrendous injuries? It's not great for the patient, but the images that have come up are, are really good and really illustrate the points really well. Are these images that have come in through in the wild where, where you, you're working? Yeah, these are all images from our center. We get many spinal injuries of varying severities all the time. So now what's happened is with this classification, we've talked about A, we talked about B, and we talked about C. But then the actual A, B, and C is actually split into further demarcations, aren't they? Like we were saying earlier, A injuries involve compression of the anterior structures or fracture of the spinous process that are mechanically insignificant, they're saying. So A0 is no injury or an isolated injury such as a laminar or spinous process fracture. A1 is compression fracture that involves the one end plate but does not involve the vertebral body or the, or the posterior wall. A2 is a split fracture that is orientated with either coronal or pincer that includes both end plates but does not involve the posterior wall. A3 is an incomplete burst fracture that only involves one end plate. Any involvement of the posterior vertebral wall results in retropulsion of fragments. And then A4 is the worst one, a complete burst fracture that involves both end plates. So again, do you find there's a combination of things that when you report on this, are you going to say it's A1 slash 2, A2 slash 3, or do you really do find that you can actually classify this quite nicely into these. I, I think these can be quite nicely classified into a subtype when you're talking about any given ver vertebral body. 
mm. or the posterior elements and mm. they have a bone only injury, usually they can be classified into one of these subtypes. And that's one of the reasons I like the AO spine classification is comprehensive of all the various different types of potential injuries to the spine. And so when it comes to the type A injuries, it's nice to know that the some of the fractures we commonly see, like a lamina-oriented lamina fracture or a spinous process fracture or transverse process fracture are considered A0, which is not structurally significant. And it helps me deprioritize that in my impression. It will go at the bottom after every other mm. more severe injury. And then when it comes to the compressive injuries, the compression fracture or the burst fracture, it really helps me think through these that they've made a distinction between the wedge compression fractures and the burst fractures because the importance is the involvement of the posterior wall. One of the most common mistakes I see with this description of compression injuries is that people will call something a compression fracture but neglect to mention that, oh, the posterior wall is involved and there's retropulsion of bony fragments in the spinal canal, which could potentially mm -hmm. cause neurologic uh, impingement, spinal cord compression, and so forth. So that's an important distinction to make, and I think that's clinically relevant. So the burst fractures are considered higher severity than the wedge compression fractures uh, because mm. of that. Yeah, so these are the points where you start to worry that the worse it gets, the more likely to be neuro neurological involvement, right? And that's part of the point in doing this a classification like this is try and help predict how likely someone's going to have longer-term effects such as that neurological involvement and spinal cord compression and all that kind of thing. So the next bit is about tension band injuries. Are you quite, would you say you're a tense person, Francis? What do you do in your spare time? What do you do to relax, to wind down? <laughs> I play video games. I, I play computer games. So I, I would say, no, I'm not a very tense person. You know what? There was a consultant I met and he told me that playing video games made him better at radiology. His theory was that there aren't many places where you're going to have that heightened sense of, I need to spot something, I need to spot something. So when he was looking for a sniper in a game, he was a chess radiologist. But he said it was likening looking for a nodule. And I can't say I've used that theory all that much. I don't play many computer games anymore. But have you found that playing computer games has increased your radiology ability? You know, I would love for that to be true. But I think my the, the visual skills I develop playing shooter games is really about reaction time and identifying mm. movement on the screen. Whereas in radiology, it's a much slower process. You're like, what is the shape of this abnormality? <laughs> You're not scrolling at 144 images per second. So you don't need that temporal resolution as much. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, a lot of the gamer stuff is actually quite useful for radiology in some ways, because I've, I've been watching stuff on different mice to use or mouse to use, different keyboards to use. And a lot of the stuff that they use is actually very useful for what we, we do. And I think there was a paper on the exact subject of using gamer technology, modify your workplace. And I can see you've got a very cool looking chair there. That's a gamer chair, mate. Am yeah. I wrong? Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting in my gamer chair. I'm using my gaming mouse, the same mouse that I use to play computer games that I'm also <laughs> using to drive my packs. Yes. It's yeah, actually, exactly, it's actually right. quite popular at my program. All the residents, it seems, have their own gaming mice. Some of them have 12 or 16 side buttons on them to drive every function of the packs. No way. I've yeah. got to, I've got to, I want to learn more. I, I need to know more about this kind of stuff. So I've seen that people actually carry mouse in this own little case. Has that happened to you guys as well? They've got a special mouse <laughs> with its lights and stuff like that. I did know a person that carried their own gaming keyboard, had some wow. special lighting and that required its own case. Yes. Oh, amazing. Amazing. So uh, do you want to tell us about tension band injuries then, Francis? Sure. So uh, tension band injuries... 
refer to the bone plus ligamentous structures that hold the spine together. And these mm -hmm. are located at the anterior and posterior parts of the spine. This applies for the subaxial cervical spine as well as the thoracolumbar spine. The anterior tension band consists of the anterior longitudinal ligament as well as the anterior part of the vertebral bodies and part of the disc as well. The posterior tension band refers to the bony posterior elements as well as the posterior ligamentous complex, which consists of the supraspinous ligament, the interspinous ligaments, the articular facet capsules, as well as the ligamentum flavum. Some of this terminology may be new to listeners. Some people might be familiar with other classifications such as slick and T-licks, which is the mm -hmm. thoracolumbar injury classification system and the subaxial injury classification system. And they use terminology like uh, PLC, posterior ligamentous complex for the thoracolumbar spine and mm. term DLC, discoligamentous complex for the subaxial cervical spine. These refer to essentially an overlapping concept with the tension band. So the tension band are these posterior ligamentous complex or discoligamentous complex plus the bones as well. So it's often mm -hmm. the case that you'll have an injury that affects both bone and ligaments. And so what you want to capture in a classification system is what are the overall sum of these bony and ligamentous injuries cause? And do they cause complete separation of the integrity of the stuff that holds the spine together anteriorly or posterior? The ligaments can be quite difficult to see on CT, but then I guess when you're taking into consideration the potential of a bone fragment being pulled off at the same time, then that kind of makes things slightly easier, right? Yeah, that's a really important point that the AO spine classification was designed to describe morphology seen on CT, but you can add mm. to it if you get MRI as well to evaluate the ligaments. So when you see on CT that bony structures are pulled apart, farther apart than they should be, then you can infer mm. the presence of ligamentous disruption. So if you see the spinous processes laid apart, then you can infer the presence of uh, injury to the posterior ligamentous complex. If you see the facets are dislocated or widened or mm. that the you know anterior part of the disc space is widened, then you can infer the presence of discoligamentous injury. I think I had something quite subtle come up recently where it was a CT scan and all there was a fair bit of edema in the posterior neck uh, around the interspinous ligaments. And that was a clincher actually. And they ended up getting an MRI spine and proving to have quite significant ligamentous injury, which was, it wasn't easy to see on first glance. You had to be aware that you got to look at the soft tissues as well. And I guess the, uh, my next question is, that, have you found this quite useful for when you're reporting MRI? I do put it into my reports primarily so I get practice with doing this classification. So I'm describing these in a consistent manner. I think mm -hmm. not everyone at my hospital is familiar with the classification, but I hope by using this classification more, even adding it at the end as a print, that more mm -hmm. people will become familiar with it. I find it mm -hmm. useful for both CT and MRI. On MRI, you can be more confident about the presence of ligamentous injury, but it's not strictly necessary. You don't need an MRI to determine whether you think there is or is not ligamentous injury, and sometimes CT alone is sufficient. However, at my institution, MRI is readily available, and many of these patients who have any suspicion for significant injury will get MRI as well if there's a question of either cord compression or ligamentous injury. So I'm just going to read out, read out the B classification in its entirety for anyone that doesn't have the article open to them. So you've got B1, B2, and B3. So B1, where you get posterior tension band injury, it's bony with physical separation between fractured bony structures, anterior structures may also be included. B2 is a posterior tension band 
and they could be bony, capsular ligamentous or ligamentous, with complete separation of the capsular ligamentous or bony capsular ligamentous structures of the posterior aspect. Again, this could include the anterior structures. And then B3 is the anterior tension band injury with physical separation between the anterior structures with persistent connection or tethering of the posterior structures. So just for anyone that does want to know what we're talking about, that's the actual classification there. So now going on to type C. So type C is a slightly different perspective on what we're looking at. So this is, seems to me more of a positional thing. Would you, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that, Francis? Yeah, so type C refers to a translational injury. So I think at this point, it's important to distinguish a distraction injury from a translation injury. So I think of type mm -hmm. B injuries, the tension band injuries as distraction injuries where either the anterior or posterior part of the spine is splayed apart and distracted, mm -hmm. but there's still a hinge on the other side that's intact. Whereas a type okay. C, you have both your anterior and posterior tension bands are disrupted. And so the spine can move every which way, the top part and the bottom part um, on either side of the injury can shift. It can translate anterior and posteriorly, and then we would call that spondylolisthesis or traumatic spondylolisthesis. Or it can you know, shift left to right, and that would be a different type of listhesis. Or it can pull apart altogether and consider that kind of dissociation if both the anterior and posterior parts are pulled apart from each other. I see. Okay, so that's interesting. So B is more to do with the idea that there is still some aspects of it that's connected to one another, right? There's some continuation of some level. But when you're going on to the C classification, then you are talking about where there's complete dissociation and potential for further quite extensive movement, not just a small amount of movement and bigger injuries to the spinal cord, right? Yeah. And yeah. by analogy to other classification systems, maybe some people would be familiar with the Dennis system where you have mm. three different columns to the spine. I think mm. a type C injury is analogous to a three column injury. So mm. you have injury through the anterior part of the vertebral body and the ligaments that hold it together. You have uh, injury through the posterior parts of the vertebral body and the you know posterior longitudinal ligament, and you have injury through the posterior elements and the posterior ligamentous complex as well. So because of that mm. three-column disruption, then the spine is completely mobile. There's going to be certain groups that are going to be more prone to this kind of thing, right? And I think from your post that I saw where you've got, again, some really great images of people with ankylosing spondylitis, right? And they're going to be more likely to have this kind of injury because of that translational force that can happen because of the ossification of the ligaments in the first place, right? Yeah, people with rigid spines, and that can be due to ankylosing spondylitis or diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, are at risk mm. for significant severe spinal injuries. And that can be either type B3, which is an anterior tension band injury, or mm. type C injury if that injury continues all the way into the posterior hinge. So these patients, they have a very rigid spine, they fall on their back, maybe on an object, hyperextend themselves and because their spine is completely fused you can't dissipate that energy through the discs and the ligaments and all that so you just hmm. create a fracture through the spine and and it can be pretty severe even with low energy trauma i think that's one of the things that are so i do a little bit of auditing and that's one of the things that do get missed is sometimes fractures through osteos in the c-spine and the lumbar spine and i think often people just assume it's just more osteophytosis or um, non-bridging osteophytosis. When you actually look at the, the bridging where it should be, you can actually see that significant break. And when you've got something like that, does increase the risk of this translational force because you've got, like you said, a, a rigid spine, right? Yeah. So when you do, when you guys do get to see uh, Francis's poster, 
presentation, you'll be able to see some really good examples of both MRI and CT going through some of that sort of translational forces. And some of it's a bit ouch, just a bit too much ouch. <laughs> yeah, I feel really sorry for these people. Okay, so the next bit, we're talking about facet joint injuries, right? And again, some parts, and not everyone pays too much attention to this. I'll read this out and we can talk about it. So the type F injuries are to describe the range of facet joint injuries in the context of multiple ipsilateral facet injuries, the highest class is used for classification. The bilateral modifier is used if both facets on the same level have the same level of injury. If the injury category on either side is different, the right side is described first. Oh, okay, I didn't know that bit. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, so what do you think? As, what do you think of the facet joints of the F classification, Francis? I think the facet joint injuries are important to include in any classification system for subvascular cervical spine injuries, and that's an improvement upon prior classification systems that did not include the facet joint injuries like the slick. Mm -hmm. And it's because that these injuries can create instability because the facets are a significant contributor to the stability of the spine. If you have mm -hmm. a facet injury that causes slippage of one vertebra on the next, then that can cause subluxation or dislocation of the entire spinal column. There are four different facet joint injury subtypes that are described in increasing severity. So there's F1, F2, F3, and F4. So just to read this out, so F1 is non-displaced facet fracture, so fragment size is less than one centimeter with less than 40% of the lateral mass involvement. F2 is going to be facet fracture that can become unstable, fragment size more than one centimeter and more than 40% lateral mass involvement or displacement. F3 is a floating lateral mass due to disruption of the pedicle and lamina. And F4 is subluxation that is pathological or perched or dislocated facet. Yeah, it's quite interesting that they've actually taken into account the size of the fragment as well, which helps towards the classification. But after F2, it's not so important about the size. I would say that the distinction between F1 and F2 is actually the weakest part of the aospine subaxial cervical injury classification as the lowest interrater reliability. Mm -hmm. And it's simply because if you have a fracture that kind of bisects the lateral mass in a kind of diagonal way, it, it may be difficult to define what is meant by the fragment size is less than one centimeter or greater than one centimeter, or if it involves mm. you know, less or greater than 40% of the lateral mass. So there's actually a, a lot of uh, probably inter-rater and potentially even intra-rater disagreement about whether uh, injury is F1 or F2. And I think it's more important to simply recognize that there is a facet fracture and mm. to distinguish these from the higher grades of facet injuries, which are the floating lateral mass and the mm. subluxed or perched or locked facet injury, which would be an F4. This may seem like a really silly question, but just uh, for some clarification, for example, with F1, when they say fragment size of one centimeter, what are they measuring? What is the one centimeter they're referring to? Honestly, it's not well defined in how mm. they put it on their <laughs> definition posters. Yeah, okay. If it fracture, it's going to split the lateral mass in kind of half, mm. right? And so mm. which side are you measuring as more than a centimeter or less than a centimeter? <laughs> That's not really clear to me. When they studied the inter-rater reliability of this system among spine surgeons to validate mm -hmm. this classification system, they showed everybody a, a long list of examples first to get them practiced. And so mm -hmm. they can rate everything in a consistent manner because mm -hmm. they found that without this training, there is a lot more variability on every step of this classification system. So I would say using this classification and 
takes some practice and when sweat the small stuff at first, like the F1 versus F2 distinction, mastering the rest should come first and then you can get to the nitty gritty of the facet injuries. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. That's what I, that's the kind of thing that I'd find a bit difficult to try and figure out like what part is 40%, what part is not 40% and all that kind of thing. But fair enough. I think, I think the big key distinctions are going to be between, like you say, the F2 and the F3, where there's a significant change in the management and significant change in the morphology of what's really happening there. And I often find that a lot of these classifications just really good way to have a checklist in your mind in the same way that when you're reporting, you're just saying all these things, but they're actually a checklist. So yes, I know there's a lot of template reporting, but when you do template reporting, there's a risk that you didn't even look in the first place. So this is quite, it's quite good to give yourself that checklist, especially in the beginning. And as you get more and more used to it, then hopefully this stuff becomes second nature. You know, the, the injuries to look for, you know how to put it into, into order in terms of importance and that kind of thing. And then hopefully communicate the, the classification if you really need. Now, the next bit of this classification is probably not something that we get, right? It's the neurological signs. So we can talk about it, but it's not really something that we all get too involved with in terms of how neurologically intact they are. So NX is where it's undetermined. So that's going to be for us, really, most of the time it's going to be NX because we don't really know unless someone tells us. N0 is going to be neurologically intact. You can only assume it is if there's definitely no injury, but even then sometimes they come out with something, right? So then N1, transient neurological injury resolved on presentation or less than 24 hours after injury. N2 is going to be radiculopathy. N3 is incomplete spinal cord injury. And N4 is complete spinal cord injury. So again, some of this can be inferred, couldn't it, from a CT scan? I don't think so. I, I think the neurologic science is supposed to be completely clinical. Uh, I think mm. it's important for radiologists to be aware that a separate part of the AOSPINE classification is the clinical assessment for neurologic deficits. And I think that's important because we have to be aware that multiple things and the mm. AOSPINE classification was created by surgeons for surgeons. It was just mm. convenient that they separated out the imaging-based assessment for us radiologists to learn. And that's the morphology mm. classification. The neurologic signs really describe what exam findings are present. And that mm. does figure a lot into whether someone should be operated on or not. When I was mm. starting as a trainee, it often confused me when I would call some severe injury in core compression, and then I saw that the patient was not operated on. But it turns out that's because they were neurologically intact. And so having some understanding of that I think improves our global understanding of how these patients do and how uh, management decisions are made and, and consequently how our imaging findings fit into mm. that. It's only one piece of the puzzle. So that's interesting. So if even if it was significantly translocated and you can clearly see that the cord is very much out of place, would you dare go anywhere near the end classification and say that this would this could be in keeping with incomplete spinal injury or complete spinal injury? Or would you just say, look, I'm not even gonna go there. That part's clinical. I just don't even go there. I, mm. I think if we were reading an MRI and we saw a complete cord transection, yeah, you could guess at it, but I'm not going to mm. say, oh yeah, now this patient is paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And that's just the ultimate outcome. So then we've got quite the interesting bit is the modifiers, right? So these are the bits that kind of add to the entire picture, as in, for want of a better phrase, a picture for a radiologist, but the entire picture of the patient <laughs> is what I mean. Yeah, do you want to tell us a little about the modifiers and how that affects the overall classification? Yeah, so the classification has the injury morphology classification that we already discussed, and it has a neurologic science. And then there's a category called the M modifiers, which are patient-specific factors that can affect surgical decision-making. 
independent of what exactly the injury morphology looks like and independent of what the neurologic deficits are. And so these are just additional factors that the surgeons thought this would affect my decision-making. We ought mm -hmm. to consider these as part of the classification. They're trying to be comprehensive here. And as many of these are relevant to radiologists and the imaging findings. We thought it would be worth taking a look at these. Yeah. M1 is to do with the posterior capsular ligament, ligaments injury without associated complete disruption. From bony perspective, the injury may seem stable. However, often seen on MRI, the posterior ligaments are damaged. M2 is where you get critical disc herniation where the nucleus pulposus will be seen protruding posterior to the vertical line along the posterior border of the lowest injured vertebra. M3 is stiffening or metabolic, metabolic bone disease such as ankylosing spondylitis, diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis or DISH. M4 will be signs of vertebral artery injury as well. So just completes the picture, gives us a little bit more information as to what's going on around and beyond the initial injury. Yeah, I, I think the M1 modifier merits some mention because it allows radiologists to throw a hedge in there. Oftentimes, as you were mentioning with your case, you might see some edema around the posterior elements, right? And we're not mm -hmm. sure whether this represents an unstable ligamentous injury or if the ligaments are intact, but just sprained and there's a little bit of edema around it. So in these situations where you don't see splaying of the posterior elements, but you do see edema on MRI, then we can offer the hedge that there is probably some posterior ligamentous complex injury, but I don't think it's a complete disruption. When there are borderline cases, whether this goes one way or the other, expressing this uncertainty allows the surgeon to make a more informed decision. Very interesting, actually. Thank you so much, Francis, for um, going through that with us. So I assume you'll be going to RSNA this year? Yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't been in years. I think I went back in 2019 quite a long time ago. That's also Absolutely. the last time I was there, actually. Oh, is it? I just assumed you'd be going every year. Why wouldn't you? You'd have to take a plane. Do you have to take a plane? Yeah, yeah it's, in, it's in Chicago. So oh, I yes, do have of a course. Plane. Yes, I mean, I went with my kids and stuff when they were small. And then genuinely, I, I've got to say, for anyone that has listened to this and hasn't gone to RSNA, you have to go to RSNA. It's, it was just cool, man. Everything about it was just super cool. I enjoyed the food. I actually went to a really nice restaurant called Alinea, I think it was. Have you heard of it? Really nice. Didn't like the bill at the end of it though, but it was very good. So I'd highly recommend that. But uh, yeah, they had an escape room. Were you there when they had escape room, a radiology escape room? I heard of that. Yeah. Oh man. Whoever that was, I wish I could find them. So you have to sign up ahead of time. I, I remember I wanted to do it, but I couldn't sign up. Yeah. I, I think one of my friends signed up and asked me to join them. And genuinely it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was such a kind of geek fest thing. Wow. One of the best things in your life. Don't tell my kids. Um, it was. <laughs> I was going to say better than your firstborn child. Better than. Yeah. Yeah. Don't tell her. Yeah. Hopefully she won't listen to any of this stuff. <laughs> cool. Cool. A any parting words, Francis? I would say that the AO spine classification, I think is a helpful paradigm to think through describing and organizing your reports when it comes to spinal trauma. It's not critical that you report the alphanumeric codes for AO spine because mm. chances are that other people won't understand you, but I still think it's worth learning just to get a sense of knowing what are the most severe features on imaging that the surgeon needs to know about and that they're going to look for in your report. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much our job is to communicate the most important findings in the most succinct way possible. And sometimes, yeah, using classifications isn't always the best way in terms of if you just put A1, B1, C1, D1 or whatever, right? But if you use it as your 
skeleton for your report to be able to actually get the main points, then yeah, then hopefully you can use this classification to be more useful and hopefully help the patient. From my point of view, thank you so much, Francis, for being my co-host today. Thank you to the Radiopedia team for inviting us in the first place. It's been a real honor, as always, to be having anything to do with such a, what I would say is an amazing area on the internet of just knowledge and something that's really helped, I think, all of us on some level to become better radiologists. And a big thank you to them and their team. And uh, I guess until next time, have a great um, week, everyone, and see you or hopefully speak to you on another podcast sometime soon. And you can find Francis on Twitter, Francis Deng. And yeah, I'm Doc Lask if you want to find me. Thanks a lot, Imran. Bye. Bye. <laughs> a bit of naughty by nature there to transition into the outro. <laughs> Big band in Switzerland, I'm sure, Gaylord. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> Bigger than the necroscanners. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to radiologist, audio engineer and sound editor, Dr. Imran Lasker for recording that readful episode for us and to Francis Deng for joining him. Uh, too clever. We're never having him back. Mm. And officially, I can say now, Gaylord, that Francis is one of our co-conveners for Radiopedia 2024, yes. along with Andrew Murphy and Sally Ayessa. So despite saying he's too clever, we will be hearing a lot <laughs> from him over the next, what, eight months or so? Excellent. Very much looking forward to all the mayhem that you put me through each year before the each virtual conference. <laughs> it's in my contract. There was a lot in that segment, though, wasn't there, Dixon? But before we get into it, do you play any computer games? Uh, no, not really. Although there is one game I've been playing recently. I might come back to it later or, or in another episode. But um, but you, Frank, you strike me as a I carry my own gaming mouse in a case kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> no, not well. Hmm. I am a gamer. I just don't mm -hmm. play computer games because I don't have the time. I very much love the idea oh, of computer games. I identify games. as a gamer, but I don't do much gaming. I do. <laughs> I very much identify as a gamer. I watch game reviews on YouTube. I talk about games with my kids. I like games. I just don't have the time. Or in some ways, I've sort of lost the habit or ability to play i've tried recently now that the kids are a bit older i've been actually trying to make time to regain hobbies because i realized that having had a young family and done the career research thing and radiopedia i kind of lost most of my hobbies mm. and so i've been trying to develop them again and i'll pick up a new game i'm really excited i start playing it and after i don't know half an hour this little voice in me says this is fun, but you could be answering emails or you could be publishing a case. And it kind of um, rips the bottom out of the experience. In some ways, it's like a loss. I grieve for the fact that I used to be able to play computer games for hours and lose myself in that. I was thinking earlier today, actually, it's like meditation. The time in your life when you most need meditation is the least likely time that you're going to do it because you don't have mm. the time to do yeah. it. If you have the time to meditate, then you're probably finished with your career. Everything's very stable. Kids yes. have moved out at home. That's not when you need to meditate. <laughs> you know? That's true. It's like that with games. I would like to play more. I'm thinking about getting a PS5 because my 
we have a PS3 down at the Holiday House and it exploded. When I go down there with the dog on my Frankations, just me, the dog and the chainsaw, I was playing some older games on the PS3 and I was halfway through something and sparks and smoke suddenly. Have you got Starlink? Because apparently Starlink yeah. causes them to explode. <laughs> no, I just made that up. <laughs> but you have got Starlink. Do have Starlink. It works great. But so now we're sort of trucking the PS4 up and back whenever we go down. Mm. And I'm thinking, oh, this might be a, a good reason to get a PS5. It's more, again, like the idea of having it is more than the actual amount that I would use it. We're open to gaming sponsorships. So if anyone mm. wants to send Frank a free PS5. Yep, absolutely. You'll review and I'll your review game. games. <laughs> Can't be any more random than the other things we talk about on the channel. Necroscanner reviews. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, have you actually got anything related to the AO classification oh. <laughs> that you want to discuss in this outro, Galen? Yes, I suppose we should. No, I'm really glad we're giving the AO classification a bit of airtime because I think actually it's really worthwhile. I'm not generally a big classification kind of person. But I think the advantages of this particular classification is not so much the actual classification, but it's understanding the mechanism of the injuries and the features that are important in it, because that affects how you report, but also how you actually look at the scan. And a good example of that is um, laminar fractures. Until you kind of go through the AO classification and realize that a vertical undisplaced laminar fracture doesn't count as a posterior tension band injury on its own. Mm. You probably wouldn't really pay attention to the direction of a laminar fracture and you probably wouldn't include it in your report and mm. you wouldn't think about how the orientation of a fracture is biomechanically important. Mm. So even if you never end up putting the classification in in the report, I think having this sort of understanding of the pertinent features changes how you interpret and report studies uh, separate to the classification. You know, the anterior and posterior tension band ideas are really useful. And we tend to be taught sort of bones and ligaments almost separately. And we look at them sort of separately because we kind of focus our attention on bones, on CTs and ligaments on MR. But really biomechanically, again, the two combined into these units so mm. big fan you i do use it um although i want to give a quick shout out to the original gangster uh denis <laughs> and his three column model but you know according to that one as you know the example you've used there with a laminar fracture doesn't matter what orientation or type of fractures involved that would be your posterior column um, mm. injured whereas you know there are posterior column in injuries and there are posterior column injuries yes. i think that's why the tension band concept is a far better one you actually include it in your reports? Uh, occasionally, not always, yeah. but sometimes we do. Yeah, I'm sort of the same. I've, when I think it's clear which one it is, then I'll include it. I do find, though, that even amongst those of us who are more familiar with it, there's a fair bit of inter-rater variability uh, in our department. And we often, well, not often, but not infrequently disagree on what mm. classification is, which means, you know, from that point of view, it's not great because it means you can end up, particularly from a trainee point of view, end up with classifications that are all over the place. But definitely using the terminology mm. in my reports, 
Uh, but it hasn't been super easy to roll out in our department. We've printed out the posters, so they're great. The AO website, uh, we'll put a link, I guess, in the descriptions. But if you just search for the AO website, they've got these posters that you can print out and put on your wall. And that is very helpful. Our website also will have plenty of examples for you to look at, as well as those charts have been reproduced on Radiopedia. Yep, with permission. We should wrap this episode up. Gaylard, how can people get in contact with us? Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course, email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with any feedback or ideas. Yes, mm. more accents, less accents. <laughs> Actually, someone messaged after our recent mini episode, Gayla, because you were saying that AMA, PRA, Category 1, credit, open brackets, as close brackets, <laughs> always needs to be in italics. That's right. And you weren't sure how to say it in italics, but apparently this listener says with authority that you speak in italics by doing an Italian accent. <laughs> <laughs> And you've got permission because you're Francesco Gala. Oh, you've got dear, heritage. I, I can't do Italian access. An AMA, a PRA, Category <laughs> 1. <laughs> We're going to have our ability to give away credits stripped. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become one of our paid supporters via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. And in doing so, you'll be helping us to give free conference and course access to people in 125 low- and middle-income countries. And and what else can people do to help us out, Frank? And you can also help us out by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. That is correct. All right. Let's read this last little bit here and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad, everyone. Stay <laughs> rad. Wow, man, that really... I just saw that in italics, <laughs> in italics. as soon as you said it. And a little yeah. TM at the, at the end of it. <laughs> well, maybe next time we'll have to think of how we do bold and yeah. underlined. <laughs> yeah, if you have a nationality that speaks in bold or in all caps, let us know. <laughs> See you next time, Frank. See you, Dixon. Hey, bold. Ha, ha, ha.